Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where uh, William typically mixes in some sort of big sound effect. There it is. Oh, it's fine. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. I write for Slash Film. And wouldn't you know it, uh, poor William Bibiani has a rather severe case of laryngitis this week. He has no voice. Oh, no. Uh, and, yeah, it's it's quite a pity. But uh, taking his place is the rather luminous and intelligent uh, writer. You probably know him from uh, Honest Trailers or Some More News. Why don't we welcome to the stage Mr. Lon Harris. Lon, hey. why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, here he is. Thank you. What a, what a lovely introduction. Lumin. I don't know if I've ever been described as luminous before. I like that. <laughs> we, we, we crack <clears throat> out the $4 adjectives around. Yeah, I do emit a certain glow. I think that's accurate. <laughs> so, uh, Lon Harris, for those who might not know who you are, why sure. don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is you do? Oh, uh, what is it I do? I, I'm a freelance writer on the internet. I write a lot of different stuff you may see on, on YouTube and, and uh, you know, it, it, websites. Uh, you mentioned Honest Trailers. One of the big things I write uh, a newsletter about streaming TV for a, a company called Inside. Uh, you can get that at Inside Streaming. Uh, I do write episodes of the news internet show, Some More News. Uh, you know, I write stuff for Ranker, Rotten Tomatoes, all, all over the place. Uh, just everywhere. Uh, anywhere oh, that oh. will give me money, yeah. <laughs> yeah, op- open up any app. He's going to be on there. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try my best. Uh, this is a special uh, catch-up week uh, because we didn't have an episode last week. Uh, so we're going to be talking about two weeks' worth of movies. Uh, we're going to be talking about All Quiet on the Western Front. We're going to be talking about Wendell and Wild. We're going to be talking sure. about Causeway. We're going to be talking about Enola Holmes 2. And we're going to be talking about Weird, the Al Yankovic story, uh, which is on the Roku channel. And... Uh, why don't we start with last week, so we can do it sort of chronologically, and why don't we start with Wendell and Wild, which was a Halloween release. Yes. It's a stop-motion animated film from director Henry Selick, who did uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and James and the Giant Peach, and Coraline, and now he has made a film with Jordan Peele, and I think it's pretty great. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I guess I can run it down a little bit. Um Sure. Uh, Key and Peele, Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele play the title characters Wendell and Wild. They're these two demons who live on the devil's head 
using magical hair cream to implant his hair plugs. Uh, beautiful opening. And they find when they find when they eat the magical hair cream, they can not only sort of hallucinate, but they end up reaching into the li- the world of the living and contacting uh, a, a young girl. I think she's like a teenager. Her name is Cat. She's played by Lyric Ross. And years ago, she lost her parents in a horrible car accident, and she's just moved into uh, 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 like an orphanage for uh, young girls and. <clears throat> She ends up befriending some of the the girls there. She ends up befriending a young uh, trans boy named Raul. And uh, Wendell and Wilde are able to psychically contact her and get her to resurrect her dead parents. Uh, And a lot of other wild things happen besides. Uh, It's a little bit of like, it's, it's, I don't mean to say it's a, it's a ripoff or anything, but it is, it's kind of the Beetlejuice formula of like, this is a supernatural undead being and it needs help from this teenage girl in order to like do its work in our world. So it's kind of that, that level of collaboration, I feel like. And and also, um, like Beetlejuice, they're completely untrustworthy characters. They're right. like Yeah, it's this they, mischievous they say, Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a line of dialogue where they say they kind of whisper to each other, We can't really resurrect our parents and they say, Well, you know, what we're really good at is lying. So they right. just lie to her. And uh the cat character is super damn cool. Uh, she wanders, you know, she's like dressed in this punk outfit and it's got the big boots and she listens to like a boombox with an eyeball painted in the speaker. Uh, and all of the music cues in this film are really, uh, really choice because they're all uh, like hard rock or punk from, right. uh, from black lead uh, rock bands. Right. So we have like Fishbone and we have uh, Living Color and we have the band Death uh, so, yeah, this this is a really fucking cool soundtrack. Yeah, this is yeah. you can really blast out of your car window. It is. It's, it's a it's a bunch of sides of black culture that Jordan Peele is into that you, that you don't see reflected in in mainstream American films. Hollywood got so caught up for several decades now in hip hop. That's what that's what black culture is, and it's it's this sort of mm. monolithic basketball and hip hop. And uh, right, right. it's so refreshing because if you, you know, you know, black people, a lot of them are, you know, nerds or punks or goth or any other <laughs> number of subcultures that we have. And so, mm. man, it is nice to see a movie that acknowledges that not every black person is this monolithic. They're all into the exact same cultural products. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm Lon, I'm not sure if you ever saw um, uh, Keanu, the one that Keanu sure. wrote and starred in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's. That's a very another element of that movie where it's about um, how how much uh, nerdery there is with right. uh, th- his characters and how much you know just how dorky these characters really are and how yeah. uh, this idea of machismo is uh, sort of tied in with a lot of the cultural pressures right. that they're feeling. It's a cool uh, thing about all Jor- Jordan Peele always brings this into his projects. And I always appreciate it because Nope too. It was about how embedded black people are in Western culture and that cowboy culture. And another mm-hmm. area where you don't necessarily think of it as being a, well, that's a black thing, but it is, you know? Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. And, exactly. And, 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 and good for him. Um, yeah. Uh, I read an interview with uh, Henry Selick on this movie, and he said that uh, 
stop motion animation is really difficult to do now because uh, CGI has actually improved a lot since he started doing what he does. You watch something like uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. Uh, there's a lot of like shimmering movement and crinkling in the, the little miniature clothes. You can see some thumbprints on that one. I think that's a, a really appealing thing about stop motion animation is you can see uh, a little bit of the, the flaws and the human touch to it. And then you compare it to some of his later films. Like James and the Giant Peach has a little bit of that same quality, but it's a lot smoother. Right. By the time you get to Coraline, it looks like super smooth. And... Then you can go over to, uh, I hate to mention it because I actually kind of hate the movie, but uh, Ardman did a film called Flushed Away right. back in the early 2000s. That was a CGI feature, but they animated it with sort of an artificial jerkiness to it to make it look like it was stop motion. Right. Yeah, and they, they can si- they can almost simulate stop motion in computer animation by this point. Like, they've gotten yeah, the textures down, but it, there there is something, I think there's a... It's almost, and I don't mean, this, this is such a pejorative word, but there's something like, there's kind of a grotesquerie to a lot of the designs <laughs> in this. Like, Oh, the, it's great. The no, animation, that's, that's, that's accurate. I think that's right. a, a high compliment. Yeah, the, the animation would sort of like round those edges. And even, even if you make the designs a little bit abstract or embellished or whatever, animation smooths it out. And when you're building dolls or working with clay or it's, it's, it's mm. physical, you can make it sort of like, yeah, there's like an appealing ugliness to a lot of the designs in this movie that I think you only get with that sort of, it's a real, you know, they're real little, little figures he's building yeah, and yeah. working with. Yeah, and I liked that the the main characters Wendell and Wild like their design changes depending on where they are. Like there's a, a vision sequence where they're just sort of like floating faces and they look really right. weird. Yeah. But when they're in the real world, they look a little bit more like human. They look like um, right. you know, gentlemanly yeah. characters. This this whole movie, it's it's really like I part of me feels like it almost shouldn't work because it's bursting. I mean, there's there's so many ideas, there's so much invention. The world building, they're constantly adding new elements to it and the world mm. and, and making it more complex. And at some point it was like, I, I can't believe this is working. Like, it almost feels too chaotic to work. And like, uh-huh. yeah, exactly like what you're saying. Like, it's so visually crazy and there's so much aesthetically going on and text with the texture of the world. And then they're constantly dumping more exposition and more ideas. And yet it all kind of comes together. It feels like a coherent mm. story by the end, which is sort of remarkable. Well, uh, I actually kind of admire that it's not entirely coherent. I feel like <laughs> like it kind of, it starts to splay out a little bit, but I've said this on, on the podcast a lot before, where I'm in admiration of a movie that kind of trips over its own feet in the service of an interesting visual or an interesting idea or something kind of original. Uh, if it's a little bit sloppy, it's actually kind of endearing. Uh, so, and I feel that way about Wendell and Wilde. It's, it, the story doesn't quite come together perfectly. It's a little too long. Uh, but at the same time, you can tell that the filmmakers are really trying to do something just bursting with imagination. The character design is really, uh, kind of crazy just yeah. across the board. Not, not just Wendell and Wilde, all the human characters are really kind of broadly designed. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, what I was going to say before was that, uh, uh, Henry Selick actually, designed the characters in such a way that you can kind of see the way they were animated. You can see, like, uh, in order to animate the mouths, like a, a, like a mouth plate can be slid off of the doll and replaced with another mouth plate where the, the rest of the yeah. head stays static. 
and you can see he left this like the seam the visual seam across their face uh visual and he I, I read an interview where he said he did that on purpose because he didn't want this to look like cgi he wanted to have some of that shabbiness in there right so uh some of uh some of Wendell and wilde's sloppiness this idea of you know the chosen one and there's all of these uh, things introduced late in the film where a nun played by Angela Bassett has psychic powers and uh, there's some sort of connection to something in the past with the school she's going to. All of that is like a little bit too YA novel and not doesn't really come together so well. But again, uh, but uh, yeah, I'm so, I, so interested in doing something visual that I kind of don't mind a lot of that stuff. I, I actually ended up ended up liking that. Like, yeah, it seems like there's no way he's going to be able to tie all this together and he can't. And yet the the movie works because you are you're you're discovering it all with the characters. Like it's just it feels like until even the final few scenes, it never stops unfolding. Like it never settles mm. into like here's the premise, and now we're gonna do this. Like every new scene is like, oh, we've got to wake up the dead town council, and now they're zombies. And then there's uh, like, right. but that's not the plot. That's just this one <laughs> sequence. Then we're gonna move on to something that would be enough for a whole movie. Under normal mm. circumstances. Uh, it reminds me of, and this is a total digression, but I'm going to do it. <clears throat> There's that Taylor Hackford movie, Malice, that I've always loved from the 90s. Not because oh, it's yeah, yeah. good. Not, but because <laughs> it's one of the only movies I can think of where there's a serial killer subplot that's like the B story. That's not even the main story. There's just also there's a serial killer in the area doing serial mm-hmm. killing. And that's that's what this feels like. It's like, oh, by the way, also there's these greedy developers and they're trying to take over the whole town and kill everybody. By the way, yeah, that's yeah. the C story. But don't worry about it. But they're there. And like that that's what this feels like. And by the end, it's like, yeah, just a mad rush of ideas coming at you. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I I I dug Wendell Wendell and Wild. I, I don't think this one's. Uh, well, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. We can't sort of predict if something's going to catch on as sort of a cult classic. But it does have a good Halloween vibe. Any sort of horror stop motion horror movie is kind of destined to lock into a certain kind of Halloween audience. Yeah. So yeah, may, maybe this one will will follow suit just like. Coraline and just right. like The Nightmare Before Christmas. I feel like it maybe won't have the nostalgia, family-friendly vibe of a of a holiday classic like Nightmare Before Christmas, but I definitely feel like as a cool stoner movie, <laughs> like animated weird head movie, I think it's got a long shelf life there. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, what, I, I guess uh, continuing the pace with... Uh, tackling things in sort of order of release. Um, there was a new version of All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. Uh, did, did you see this one? I have not. I have not. I've oh. read the book, so I know the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, well, have I, mean, not, I have not seen the new film. I've seen the classic film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the book, um, All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remark, uh, was... Like that's standard reading in a lot of United States classrooms. Like a yeah, lot of I, I read it in I read this school. in like... Yeah, I read this one in like the seventh grade. It's pretty raw for the seventh grade. Yeah, but, wow, uh, that's 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 crazy. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, the original book came out in 1929. The fil- the original film, the American film, uh, came out in 1930. Right, and that film is without hyperbole. I think it's one of the best films ever made. Uh, it's definitely one of the best war films ever made, in that it's one of the few just pointedly anti-war films that you might find. 
and uh, and William and I have talked about this a lot. How uh, cinema actually has a lot to answer for when it comes to the way it depicts combat. Right. Uh, I, I think it was. Uh, uh, I think it was fr- Truffaut. Fr- Oh, I was going to say, I think it's Fritz Lang. Isn't that classic quote Fritz Lang? Where he's like, there's no such thing as an anti-war film because it makes it exciting. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, we've always attributed that to Truffaut, Godard, or, or maybe now it's Fritz Lang. I have to oh, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, the idea that uh, it's difficult to depict combat uh, negatively because combat is so, so inherently visual and dramatic. So if you depict combat even in negative light, it's going to be exciting to watch. So it's difficult to make an anti-war film. But I think the original All Quiet on the Western Front does that. And uh, it's been taught in classrooms as like maybe a possible means to actually teach people about the evils of war. And uh, that was an American film. Right. Then there was like a TV movie in the 70s. Oh, which I have not seen. That yeah, that it, it's okay because nobody's seen it. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was it aired. Yeah, on, ni- in, uh, 1979 on CBS with Richard Thomas mm-hmm. and Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and go. it's a German novel. But the two films that we've had, you know, the, the original 1930 film, and then the uh, 1979 TV movie, those are American productions. Uh, right. So this this new one from 2022, it's on Netflix. It's directed by a German director named Edward Berger, and uh, it's the first German production of this novel. Yeah. And uh, all of the novel and the films are about a young uh, soldier. His name is Paul Baumer. And he's he's like he's a teenager and he's uh, recruited to go fight on the German front. And he goes into the front and everything's really horrible there. And he goes out into the countryside and everybody's just become embittered and he sees all of his friends and all of his superior officers die. It doesn't matter if they're optimistic or pessimistic, they die. And we, over the course of the story, we see him harden and become just more and more depressed. And, uh, at the end of the 1930 film, uh, we see him after all of his war experience, go into a classroom where a new team of teenagers is being taught all of this propaganda about how glorious it is to go to war and how wonderful it is to fight for your country. And he essentially just says to the kids, no, none of it is great. And the last shot of that original movie is all of the soldiers lined up walking off to war and it fades into the battlefield and the battlefield is just full of gravestones. You're just marching off to death. Uh, uh, that This film does this as well. Like it doesn't have the, the same coda at the end, but it's about Paul Baumer. It's about him going to the front and more so than most uh, war films, this is just a litany of complete misery. There's, there's not like a real arc. Like he just dives in, he's surrounded by death and violence and destruction and explosions and flying limbs. Uh, he has to dive into these holes and murder people. There's a scene late in the film where uh, he's trapped in a, a like a, a crater that's been left by a bomb with a French soldier and the French soldier has been injured and he's crying, the French soldier and Paul Baumer hits him with a rock, but doesn't kill him and just says to him, like keeps yelling at him to shut up when he's crying out in pain. And after a few minutes, finally goes over and starts helping him after already having brained him with a rock. Um, <laughs> Yeah, everything is muddy. The yeah. the trenches fill up with mud and blood and filth, and there's no food. And he goes out into the countryside, and there's just more death and misery. 
I was reminded less of the original All Quiet on the Western Front and more of a film from a few years ago that I really admired called uh, The Painted Bird, which uh, was... uh, It it took place, like, out in sort of the Eastern European countryside, and it followed this 10-year-old boy, and even though it wasn't directly about the war, sort of World War II's just evil and violence it sort of permeated the mud of the landscape and he just sort of wandered out into the world and suffered uh, you know vignette after vignette after vignette of him just sort of encountering pain and misery and death uh it it is just a, one of the more difficult films you'll watch and this one is almost as hard as that just watching this guy seeing everybody get blown to pieces uh all of that stuff is pretty exhilaratingly miserableist and you know there's something to be said about just experiencing and viewing all of that pain uh what this film kind of where this film kind of missteps it's pretty long it's 147 minutes long and it's because they add stuff there's more in this movie than there is in the book uh daniel Bruhl appears in this movie as uh one of the politicians who is trying to argue the armistice. He's right. like one of one of the diplomats who's trying he's, to. He's end playing the war. a real guy. I, like I, yeah, I, I read uh, about this. Yeah, like yeah. They, the, uh, there's a, a a real German politician named Matthias Erzberger. There you go. Um, That's the name, right? Yeah. And yeah, Daniel Bruhl plays Matthias Erzberger, and yeah, it's about his efforts to negotiate the armistice. And I I guess the point of that is to show that the soldiers' experience is completely divorced from that or maybe it was also to show that the politicians are aware of how horrible things are but it it does feel like dead weight like it's not necessary to the story it's like they're just trying to make the film a little bit bigger or maybe they're just trying to put a little bit of a like a a, like an intermission in the violence but yeah it it uh, it feels kind of unnecessary so i i feel like there's all these like little weak points uh, sprinkled throughout this otherwise strong, muddy, miserable uh, litany of violence. It's weird because on I haven't seen this film, just so I'm, so I'm speaking to your comments. But uh, yeah. I think it's interesting. You're, you're, you know, on one level, the point of a film like this is to give you that sort of you are there, like experience the horrors of war in this sort of firsthand way by this you know relentless litany of litany of miseries, and then you would break that up by sending people onto, you know, digressions about Daniel Bruhl and the politicians and the negotiations. It almost seems like you're working at counter counterpoints. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's, I guess there's something to be said for that, like to show like two halves of it, but I, the whole point of all quiet on the Western front, um, at least to my eye is that it is a work, uh, it's an anti-war work that it's a work about sort of pacifism over a war. Although I, I, ended up looking up a little bit about Eric Maria Remarque, who wrote the original novel, and evidently he felt that it wasn't oh, an anti-war piece. It was just more of of a diary, because it was based on his own experiences as a soldier. Um, right. I, I think but, there there is, like, weird historical, like, in the years after, like, the Nazis didn't like All Quiet on the Western Front, because they felt it was like, Germans are cowards! They don't want to fight! Uh, yeah, so, yeah. like, there was a political reason for a remark to years later be like, hey, uh, it's not saying Germans don't want to fight. We, we love to fight. 
we yeah. love to fight. We're very tough guys, you know. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I don't. I, it depends on the year. You have to look at what the quotes he was he was providing. Yeah, I suppose because yeah, it was published in twenty nine, and that was uh, we're right on the brink decade, of uh, yeah, a shit getting before some horrible things. Right, and, yeah, and like Goebbels was like very hard on All Quiet. Like he hated it, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether or not uh, Remark felt that way, that's definitely the point of the 1930 film, uh, uh, which was directed by um, uh, Lewis Milestone. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, like I said, that that's that's an excellent movie. I, I think everybody needs to see that one. I think it's really, really important in terms of the way war is depicted and the way yeah, war is treated on film. It's one uh, of those old older films, too. You know, people think of, you say it's a 1930 film. People picture, mm. you know, like that like sped up motion of people doing the Charleston or whatever, like it's going to look old and like they're, you know, that's a, it's a huge epic scale production. I mean, it's like Mm. a real, like they're recreating world war one battles in this like sort of grand old Hollywood style. And it looks cool. Like it, it, I'm not cool. Like, it, it, it is. It looks devastating, but it looks. It doesn't look like crummy. Like it looked like it. It still looks impressive to see yeah, yeah. physically as a production. Well, and and it, it's also really good. You you said it's like big in Hollywood, but it's it's also incredibly dark. Like there's a scene from the original 1930 film where uh, somebody's climbing over a, a barbed wire fence when a bomb goes off, and the smoke clears, and we only see their severed hands hanging yeah. onto the fence, which, you know, that's pretty raw for a film from 1930. Right, um, well, it's also pre-code, I think, right? So, like, it, it, it was, is, yeah, it's a pre-code. Yeah, film. so, I mean, like, it, it, it's also, like, there are some movies that are early enough to be like, oh, that's, I didn't realize old movies got raw like that, because I've only, you know, mm. like, most most modern viewers have only seen sort of post-code movies from yeah. classic film. Yeah, I, I feel like the, Definitely see the 1930 film. Uh, this this 2022 version is it's good, but yeah, it's I guess it couldn't possibly be as good as the 1930 film. Yeah, but, uh, yeah that's a lot to live up to. It's a it's it is a it is a universally uh, heralded classic that 1930 one. It's also yeah, this is yeah. Germany's submission for this year's Oscars, so we may be hearing mm. more about it if it scores an Oscar yeah, or not. It, it it does. I mean, it, it is a big production. This is like you know, big budget, you know, big period piece. Wonderful photography. Um, uh, the the cinematographer is named James Friend. He and Edward Berger have done a lot together. Yeah. Edward Berger is not a director whose work I was like super familiar with. He's done mostly films in Germany. Uh, he's done like TV shows. Uh, with some. Yeah. Well, he directed uh, like episodes in England, of uh... Yeah. Patrick Melrose, that one with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, uh, I never yeah. saw. I I didn't know what Patrick Melrose was, but oh, yeah, yeah. it was it. it was on it was a British limited series, but it was on Showtime in America. I think. Okay. Uh, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch plays like a like a like an aristocratic uh, alcoholic and drug addict, and we follow him at various periods of his life as he sort of mm-hmm. eventually cleans up his act. Uh, it was pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, this is sort of my first taste of his work, though, and it does have a little bit of that, uh, maybe a little bit too inappropriate a slickness. I would have liked to see this uh, have been photographed in black and white, maybe. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it does have, uh, like, it just doesn't feel small. They're really going for something much, much larger, and because of modern filmmaking techniques, it is this wonderfully slick production, especially when compared to... I hate to keep comparing it to the 1930 film, but I kind of have to. Um, but at the same time, in adding so much more, it feels almost 
a little bit less. Like it's losing sight of its thesis. Right. Yeah, that's an um, interesting choice to cut away because mm-hmm. like, it's a it's a war movie. It's not about the the, poli- the politics of World War One. So it is an odd choice well, to yeah, like, I, leave I, I, the I, battlefield entirely. Yeah, un- unfortunately, it is now. It's about the politics of World War One. <laughs> right. The the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that, that's all quiet on the Western Front. Uh, what would you like to talk about from this week, Lon? Huh. Well, let's see. I watched. Uh, there's two from this week I've seen. Uh, okay. We could do. You want to do Causeway? Let's talk about sure, Causeway. Let's, yeah, let's talk about Causeway. Well, we'll save Weird Al for the end. Yeah, so, I, think, leave, I feel leave, like Weird Al's a good closer. Yeah, leave leave people you know thirsting for Weird Al. Yeah. Um Because I, I got plenty to say about Weird Al. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, let's talk about Causeway. This is. Uh, a film from uh, a, a production company called Excellent Cadaver. It was Jennifer Lawrence's production company. That's right. This is the first one uh, from her production company. I this wonder what f- that name refer. I don't. I'm, I don't know what the story is behind Excellent Cadaver. I'm curious uh, now. I, I'm guessing it's some sort of riff on the phrase "exquisite corpse," perhaps. But yeah, ah, maybe. Yeah. Or maybe it's guess. yeah. Or or it could be uh, you know that sort of live fast, die young, and leave a beautiful corpse. Yeah, something um, like right. Something who's like to say? that. And that, and that phrase is somehow dear to Jennifer Lawrence. But uh, here's Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, she plays a character named Lindsay. She's the year isn't explicitly stated, but I'm guessing it's like the early 2000s. Uh, it's like 2004 right. ish. And she, um, she is returned from Afghanistan and was uh, hit by an IED and they were building some kind of dam there. So, I mean, it could be any time from the last 20 years. Probably, I would say, yeah, like the mid the mid to late aughts is a good guess. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we don't get a lot of her. We don't get her backstory right away. We just see her uh, in recovery at first. Like the right. first thirty minutes of this movie is just her going through physical therapy, and she's suffered some sort of traumatic brain injury that has also isn't defined for a long time. Uh, she has trouble standing. She has trouble expressing herself. Uh, she has gone through some sort of not just trauma, but a lot of uh, physical injury that is preventing her from uh, interacting with the world. And the, the first act of this movie is her and uh, like a, a caregiver trying to get her to do things like open drawers and learn how to drive and hold things with her hands. Like she's really struggling. And the movie is incredibly slow moving through these portions. And, and that's, descriptive not a criticism uh where it's just sort of focusing on the little tiny mundane things that she need that she is struggling with in order to just function on a basic level and eventually she learns how to drive uh although even when she's driving she has like her her caregiver says something kind of uh, not flip but just casual like you're you're about to be out in the world and she has a little, like a little miniature panic attack. So she has to pull over. Um, getting through the tiny details of everyday life are just a Herculean task for her. And I think Jennifer Lawrence really pulls out a lot of the pain that her character is feeling, not just in, in her physical body, but also how frustrated she is by the fact that she can't really put these things together the way she used to. And she's frustrated that learning to drive a car is supposed to be considered a triumph. She kind of resents her own injury. Uh, she goes out into the world. She moves back in with her mom, who's played by uh, an actress named Linda Edmond, who's like a multiple Tony winner. She's like just a, a hugely decorated actress. 
and her mom, uh, she moves in back into her mom's house in New Orleans. Uh, she, and her, the first thing her mom says was, I thought you were going to be back a few days later. Like her mom isn't really warm to her. And we learn over the course of the movie that her relationship with her mom has always been incredibly strained and her relationship with her brother, especially who remains off screen for most of the movie. That's also really strained. And she ends up befriending a man named James who is a mechanic. He looks at, he's trying to uh, repair her truck that's broken down. And he's played by Brian Tyree Henry, who is excellent. I love him in this movie. And it's about uh, their friendship. And I appreciate really early on, they establish that uh, Lindsay, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character is queer. So there's not going to be a romance. This is just going to be about a friendship. And I feel like we don't get enough movies that are about friendship and yeah i mean uh, well it's 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 a specific kind of friendship which is that like friendship when you're already an adult and it's someone you didn't Mm. know when you were younger or grow up with there's there's so many i feel like that we get a lot of movies that are about friendship but we almost always look at it from one of two it's either lifelong friends or it's young it's like a coming of age friendship thing or it's estranged friends you know like yeah. we were friends 15 years ago and we had a falling out but now we're coming we don't get a lot of movies about like i'm a lonely 30 year old and i need a new friend and like yeah, that's yeah. a real thing like it's it's a real thing i think everybody in their 30s and 40s has experienced you've made <laughs> a new friend as an adult or you've been in a situation where you felt like geez what happened to all my friends i could really use a friend mm-hmm. uh, and I, it was just nice to see a movie touch on that because I feel like it's a thing that just we don't talk about a lot. Yeah, yeah the, there aren't a lot of movies about adult friendships. Right. I, I, I feel like um, um, I really like the movie Francis Ha, the Noah Baumbach movie. Sure, yeah. That's that's about a woman who's twenty nine, and it's like she's reaching the age when, like, sort of couch surfing and struggling to make it isn't like really cute anymore like you, you have right. to you have to kind of knuckle under and just settle in on something yeah and i mean and, another uh, thing about big, uh, i was just gonna say also at that age it, it is it's it's the same kinds of things are happening in your late 20s and early 30s there's there's that where it's like you're you know the later bloomers are transitioning from living like post-college to living like real adults and then yeah. you've also got you know, that's the point where a lot of people have now gotten married, have had a child or two, and they're starting to transition away from spending all of their time with friends. They're starting to nest, you know, they're becoming domesticated. And so uh-huh. the people who did not couple off and did not get married, they're now in a position where a lot of their friends are suddenly gone. And there, there is this opening like, well, what am I going to do with my life now that... I'm not, you know, nesting like everyone else. And, and and I think this movie kind of touches on a lot of this without explicitly being about all of that. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's a huge part of this. And I feel like but I, I this is a, a film directed by a, a director named Lila Neugebauer, and she's actually a celebrated theater director. This is her first feature film. And she's really careful to construct their friendship uh, as it's not that it's based on mutual suffering, but it's that these are adult people who recognize uh, that they have suffered and that they can kind of relate to this, uh, the sort of mutual trauma in their lives and find a respect for it. It's not about 
sort of leaning on each other for mutual warmth. I feel that's sort of like a, a young person's friendship kind of a, a thing. This It's not desperate. It's actually kind of uh, very revealing about how these characters can open up to one another because they've both suffered. And they're also both, uh, in very real ways, both still injured. Uh, the Lindsay character is still physically injured. She's still uh, trying to get over a lot of trauma with her family. And uh, there's actually a really damning speech partway through where uh, the Brian Tyree Henry character has had a few drinks and explains why he is where he is and uh, how, you know, something happened on the causeway, the title of the movie, that has caused his life to sort of take a turn for the worse. Yeah, it's it's both. It's, I, I think everything you're you're saying is is true. And it's also about that. It's they're the only people that can understand that they don't want to be pitied and look looked down on. And, and I think, yeah. you know, I, I think the, the film is so much about when you're when it's not just something awful has happened to you, but when everybody around you knows that something awful has happened to you. And in both of these characters, they, they both have these these sort of public traumas where the people yeah. in their community know that they've been through this thing. Uh, mm. You know, everybody's sort of with kid gloves. Everything's really delicate. And, and you, were, you were talking about, we spend all that time in the opening of the movie. Judy Houndshell is that actress. She's from, I know her from Only Murders in the Building, who plays the the caregiver in the beginning oh, of the God. movie who's looking after her. Uh, and, like, explicitly, those scenes are, let me put your clothes on or help you take your clothes off or help you brush your teeth or help you move around because she's literally fresh off of this injury and can't take care of herself. And so yeah. I think we, we get that so much front-loaded because at the end of the movie, we recognize, well, everybody else in her life is still doing this in some ways with her. She's still like this fragile, breakable thing. And everybody, are you okay? You know, like there's sort of the world is kind of hovering around her and only around another person who's been through what she's been through and realizes she's not totally broken. In, that's the only sort of piece there is the only person who's not who's just going to give her a beer and treat her like a normal person and not be like you okay yeah yeah um i i watched this film uh, with uh, my wife who is from louisiana she's not from new orleans but she's from louisiana so she says that a lot of the period or the, a lot of um local detail was really correct like in terms of sound design and the way a lot of right. louisiana streets look so there's actually a lot of uh local texture that I think the the camera just sort of sits and looks at and sort of lets us very slowly zoom in into the minds of these characters and uh, really get to know them. It's really scare skillfully put together. Um, it's a little downbeat. It's a brief. It's only about 94 minutes, uh, but that, it might be stronger for it. It doesn't have to be sort of this explosive, like there is a big confrontation, but it doesn't, it's not this sort of long series of melodramatic reveals and, you know, years and years of healing and, uh, you know, a lot yeah. of talking about it. It's about the experience and the friendship and how these, the subtle emotional interplay can do a lot to help these grown people relate to one another than, uh, I think a lesser film, which would have like a lot more speechifying and a lot more confessional moments. Yeah. Uh, and it, that, that it would, it would would have been sort of bogged down if it had done that, but this this doesn't do that. It has a little, it's a little bit more adult and a little bit more tasteful. 
Yeah, there we you, you see that 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 sort of stuff on the internet all the time, or those kinds of dismissive comments where like, oh, there's no plot, there's no story, mm. and it's like this. There, there doesn't have to be. Like the, the, this movie is about these people, and it, it's not story driven. It's not narrative driven. There's an up and a down. They meet, they become friends. There's a conflict. There's a resolution. I'm not saying it doesn't have those things, but. You know, it's not about that. It's about the friendship, and it's about these two people and getting to know them a little bit. And I totally agree. I think it's the stronger movie for not trying to reinvent the wheel and set them on a brand new course in life and totally give them these huge arcs. It's just about, you know, getting to know them in this kind of slice of life way over this dramatic sort of moment and period in their lives. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, deeply appreciated. Uh, Yeah. It's... This one, it's an A24 film, but it was put out by uh, Apple TV. It's on Apple TV now. Yeah. And, um, uh, just, I'm and so this is... happy that we got Jennifer Lawrence away from Adam McKay and David O. Russell. Everything is so much better <laughs> that we got. Don't go back, Jay. I, I, does Jay Law listen to your podcast? I don't know if Jay Law listens. But if Jay Law, if you're listening, don't go back to Adam McKay and David O. Russell. You're better off without them. You're better than they are. Well, uh, I I don't I actually don't mind her work with David O. Russell. I know David O. Russell like I, you can you can find some recordings just sort of he he's on record for <laughs> being pretty horrible. Not to his a nice actors. man. Not yeah. a nice man. I mean, I listen. I like I Heart Huckabees. I'm not here to say David O. Russell's never made a good movie. I don't I don't think that the the work he's doing with Jennifer Lawrence is either of their best work. Let me uh, put well, it that way. I, I I still my wife and I still quote one of her lines from American Hustle where um she like made a mistake that somebody had to correct and in, in correcting that mistake sort of uncovered a bigger conspiracy so she yells out thank god for me <laughs> we yeah love that. she's listen uh, she's great and that that's a fun movie I don't know the movie feels it feels kind of broad it, there's sometimes where people try to riff on Scorsese but they. They're not Scorsese, and so it comes off kind of campy. Like, Blow mm-hmm. is another example, and, like, that's in that category for me, where it's like, it's not bad, but it's just like, you're not Marty. Don't try to be Marty. <laughs> Let Marty yeah. be Marty and you be you, you know? Uh, I, I appreciate, though, that we... I, I feel like we kind of have Jennifer Lawrence back a little bit. Like, she's been working yeah. pretty constantly, but I feel like we kind of lost her to the blockbuster machine for a little right. too long. She totally. just was in... The Hunger Games movies, and she was also in the X Men movies, and like she was swallowed up by those bigger films. She was also in right. the movie Passengers. Like she has to be right. these big, high-profile special well, even effects. Like, even movies. like Red Sparrow and stuff. It's like this. This. This is more in the line of like Winter's Bone and like the kind of dramas and character studies she was doing early on. Mm. Which I mean, she's fantastic in this movie. This is the Jennifer Lawrence I want to see more. Yeah, this is like. If you think back all the way to 2010 when she was in Winter's Bone, it's like exactly. oh she's like and like an important new voice. Exactly. And then she would she would also give all these really interesting, uh, completely flip and dismissive press review or press uh, interviews, where she'd uh, just say ah oh, whatever I really don't care. It's like oh well thank goodness, thank yeah. goodness we have somebody who's like so clear like a young actress who's so clear thinking, and yeah then she got sort of swallowed up by a lot of these. Uh, big blockbuster movies. She, you know, she teamed up with some interesting filmmakers. I, I'm a big, f- one of the few big fans of the movie Mother, the Darren Aronofsky. Oh no, I like I like Mother. I like Mother a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah mo- speaking of miserablest movies, like that is just <laughs> yeah. A, 
a wonderfully like aggressively horrific film. I, I really love uh, Mother. So I can tell that she has like interesting taste and she's trying to go for interesting projects, but it's been a long time since she's been able to really just play like a straight drama without that unfortunate Hollywood sheen all over it. This one feels like a little bit more, for lack of a better term, a little bit more actorly, and I'm happy to see that she's doing it. Yeah. So it's good for her. Low key. It's 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 yeah, it's just yeah. about what it's about, and it doesn't feel like it has to hit you over the head, and it doesn't feel like it's for. It doesn't feel like it's been simplified and worked down and smoothed smoothed out for a mainstream audience. It feels like it you know expects you to do a little work to bring your bring some some thought to it and uh, yeah, engage yeah. with it on its own level and man that is very that's just refreshing to see <laughs> wouldn't you know it an adult movie or yeah most movies are not most movies do not trust you to think about them on your own they're like this is what it's about <laughs> uh trauma and grief grief trauma what 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 is what is grief and what is grief if not an incessantly yeah. reused theme in Hollywood movies? Exactly. Uh, if you're a woman over forty dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause, and Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Why don't we talk about Enola Holmes 2? Well, you'll talk about it. I'll, I saw All the right. first one. I saw the first Enola Holmes. Okay, well, what'd you think of the first one? What'd you think of Enola Holmes? <laughs> it's fine. It, it's one of those Netflix things where it's like, look, I got no specific complaint about it. It was uh-huh. fine. But I also, like, barely recall it now that it's been two years since I watched it. Three. Yeah. I think it was two, 2019, so it's been three two, years. Tw- when was that last one? It was... Uh, 2019. I think yeah. it's 2019. I think I'm right. Yeah. T- uh, no, 2020. 2020 oh, was, well, there you go. So yeah, it's been so two, it's two years. years it's been two years. Um, yeah, Enola Holmes, uh, if... It's based on a series of young adult books by uh, an author named Nancy Springer uh, called The Enola Holmes Mysteries. Enola Holmes is the younger sister of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and she's played by Millie Bobby Brown in these two movies. Uh, and it's it's a very sort of modern, hip-talking version of Sherlock Holmes, where she's super confident and super hip and has a crush on a boy and is constantly breaking the fourth wall and addressing the audience and... She was raised by uh, her mother, is played by, of course, by Helena Bonham Carter, because of course it's Helena Bonham Carter. And uh, she's trained her, uh, trained in Ola Holmes how to fight and how to be observant and how to read and just be smart and aggressive in the world. And of course, uh, she goes out into the world and encounters nothing but sexism, because that's the world she lives in. Uh, at the end of the first movie, she solved her first case, and uh, she's very proud of herself. In, at the beginning of Enola Holmes 2, she's decided to open up her own detective agency. She wants to uh, you know, make, make it on her own and get out of her more famous brother's shadow. Uh, Sherlock Holmes appears in both movies. He's played by Henry Cavill. So this is like young, sexy Sherlock Holmes. Um, and but she decidedly, the original Sherlock Holmes, not, not sexy. Not, 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 oh, not, know, not, it, not a sexy character. It, it depends on, on your depiction of it. Uh, he's... <laughs> 
in the I original, don't think of most of the 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 classic in, depictions as being sexy. I, I suppose not. In the the original Arthur Conan Doyle uh, stories, he's like a little bit more of a sort of like a grim, smug intellectual. Yeah. Like he's, he's, he's like not a, he's, not a charming he's an guy. oddball. Yeah, he's yeah, like a, and, he's very he's more eccentric. I feel like in the books than most of the screen depictions. Yeah, they yeah. they tend to smooth it out for the movies. Of course, you know. I think Sherlock Holmes still to this day might hold the record for the one fictional character who's been adapted to film the most. I believe I, that's true. I, yeah. yeah it's Dracula. I, it's Dracula or Sherlock Holmes. I think they, yeah, they Dra- duel it out for this. Yeah, Dracula, Sherlock Holmes. And for a while there was Tarzan as well. Although I think Tarzan's sort of fallen out of favor. Um, yeah. It's a little problematic. Today. Yeah. But uh, Enola Holmes, uh, fun a fun kind of modern girl power kind of a character. And uh, yeah. just in, in that, uh, she's it's the... got that very, like it's in the Victorian era where Edouard, I think it's Victorian, uh, but it's, it's yeah. like the characters have a very modern view, even though they're in that period of history. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the characters are modern, just sort of depending on the dictates of the plot. Uh, some of them are really backwards. Some of them are really modern. Uh, Enola Holmes is most certainly modern. Millie Bobby Brown is having... She's just so energetic. She's having so much fun with these movies. Uh, I think she really loves the character. You can almost extrapolate, uh, like, a lifelong career for Millie Bobby Brown with me- these movies. Like, she could be making these into, into her 70s if she wanted to. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole, like, uh, that she's younger would fall away after a while, but who cares? She's a fun character. And uh, in this one, uh, she's trying to start her own detective agency, but she has to close it immediately because nobody takes her seriously because she's a young woman. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, she right when she's closing, she's hired by uh, another young girl uh, who says that her sister has been missing. It turns out she and her sister have been working at the local match factory. And this goes to... Uh, if you can actually look this up, an actual strike in 1888 done by Match Girls. At the time, there was um, uh, a lot of uh, sickness and bad treatment going on in these matchstick factories. And right. there, this uh, marked one of the first sort of notable labor strikes in England that ended up turning around things uh, for a, a lot of uh, just a lot of laborers at the time. And uh, Sarah Chapman, a real person, is a supporting character in this. Uh, so you, we get sort of this fictional, uh, no, a fiction out of a fiction, sort of getting involved in uh, this real life case. And it turns out, you know, this is revisionist history where Enola Holmes gets to look into this matchstick factory and get involved in sort of real life. And yeah. it's it's too long. It's two hours <laughs> and nine, two hours and nine minutes. It needs to yeah, be 95. Like you can get in and out. Too- uh, and Did you guys review? Many... I'm going to stop you right there. Did you yeah. guys review the School for Good and Evil on this podcast? Oh, we did not. I didn't see the School of Good and okay. Evil. I, we don't have to talk about it, but it is. I swear, like based on the trailer, it looks like it should be an hour forty. You're in and you're out. It's two and a half hours long, and yeah, yeah. like that's that's insanity. And I feel like that's almost like like there's no way Enola Holmes two should be over two hours long. Come on. Well, I, I, I'm getting the sense, you know, I get the sense with this and uh, you know, a lot of just movies are sort of generally speaking, getting a lot longer. And I feel like uh, some studios kind of started smarting a couple of years ago with the release of, um, I, I mean, it's been happening for a while, but with the release of Justice League. 
uh, yes. uh, Zack Snyder made this film, but he wasn't able to finish it because of a personal tragedy. So they called in a different director and uh, uh, Joss Whedon had to complete it. Everybody knows the story of Justice League. It's pretty well publicized at this point. Sure. Uh, yeah. But... Uh, and eventually, you know, fan outcry on social media started demanding that the studio release the original cut. There wasn't an original cut, but then they ended up giving $70 million to Zack Snyder to go back and kind of finish the movie the way he wanted. So now we have, like, these two very different versions of the same movie. I, Quite frankly, I think they're equally entertaining. Like, one is, like, a little bit better than the other, but uh, I feel like now, though, because of that a lot of studios are starting to balk when it comes to cutting things down. They want the director's cut that you would, in previous generations, get as a special feature on the DVD as just the original cut of the movie. Maybe. I which feel like means... this has been happening for longer. Like To me, I blame... I, I think this is Jerry Bruckheimer's fault. I think this was... Oh. Movies... All big event movies used to be like an hour 45. Like, when yeah. I was growing up, when I was a kid, and we would go see summer movies... Every single one was an hour 45, two hours at the very top, unless it was like uh, an epic, unless it was like Braveheart. Like those were longer. Gladiator, Braveheart. But otherwise, no, no, other non-epic movies were an hour 45. And then Bruckheimer came along with those like (laughs) Pirates movies. Oh, God, those Pirates movies are interminable. Right, and that's when it was that era. All of those big summer Bruckheimer, like Armageddon, those Michael Bays and those Gore Verbinski's, those were the ones where they were always two and a half hours long, and that became, like, the new standard. Like, if I'm going to go see an action summer blockbuster, I don't I don't get my money's worth unless it's 150 minutes. And it's like, uh, fuck that. Like, I don't like that at all. Go back to the glory days of, like, Air Force One, where it's, like, 100 minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. It was it was uh, uh, John Waters who said that no film needs to be more than ninety minutes. Like we can, we can stop there. We're good. I mean, um, like listen, like I I some films earn their epic length. Like the the Peter Jackson's Lord of the Ring movies, I would watch them forever. I don't care. They earn their length. But like, uh, uh, not, no, you, you can not, short, you can shorten all the, three of those. All all, yeah. three, all of those movies can be shortened into not the one two and a, one two and a half movie two and a half. Not a Nola Holmes. The most outrageous one I've ever seen is, uh, I don't know if you guys have watched these on Netflix, the Kissing Booth trilogy, those YA rom-coms. We did the the honest trailers for Kissing Booth 1 and 2, so I had to watch them. And the Kissing Booth 2 is two and a half hours long. Jeez, yeah. It is a teen rom-com. It's a high school romantic comedy. Uh, You know what? Expectations change. And, you know, we we had... (laughs) We had a, a big uh, superhero epic uh, in 2019 called Avengers Endgame. That was three hours long. We had a, a Batman film earlier this year. That was three hours long. Yeah, but those That's are like, like uh, okay, like they're trying to destroy an entire city. This is literally like, well, we got to set up a kissing booth at prom. That's not two and a <laughs> That's not a two and a half hour story. Hey, look, have you set up a kissing booth at prom? Uh, I have. You, you don't that, know. You don't know how hard it is. There's a lot going in. There's also a dance dance revolution competition in the city. Okay, so, so there's a lot yeah, going on. See, there's a lot going on. Kissing Booth 2 and <laughs> Avengers Endgame are the same movie, is yeah. my point. Uh, no, Noah Holmes has, like, it has way too many subplots. They have to work in a lot of, um, 
she has a, a crush on a young man, and they have to work in that character and bring him back in. Yeah, like, it's, every it's, once in a while to make sure that she still has a crush on. And it's very sweet, but it's a lot. There's like a lot of extra stuff. It's one of those movies. It's trying to do like the Red Notice thing of like hit hit all the quadrants. I don't I don't yeah. think this is a I don't think these movies are full on Red Notices, but they're 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 doing. <laughs> it's a little bit of comedy. It's a little mm. bit of action. There's a mystery. Maybe there's a caper or two. We're doing the romance. Like they're trying to touch. You know, put their finger in every pie. Yeah, uh, explain a little bit to our our listeners who who might not know what. Oh, what a uh, like red might, notice! We we've reviewed the film Red Notice, but you've on on social media have sort of coined right. uh, Red Notice as like a subgenre unto itself. There there is there is a kind of film that that, that a lot of studios are making now that is there. It's kind of a, it's action. And it's comedy, and there's always like a heist or a caper kind of element too, and it's all those things, but it's also kind of none of those things. Like it's a comedy, but it's not really like funny situations are written to be funny. There's just like a character played usually by Ryan Reynolds will just like wisecrack over the whole movie. So that's how you know it's a comedy. And there's like action, but it's not a full-on action movie with like really thought-out action scenes. There's just like maybe he'll like have to get chased around for a little bit or there'll be like a little mini car chase or there's like a shootout every now and again just so you feel like you're seeing something action. And mm-hmm. uh, and 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 I just feel like, like yeah, it's, it's kind of leaning in a lot of different directions without ever settling into like a genre. And so... Red Notice is a great example. I actually think Jungle Cruise, that Disney movie, is probably the best example yeah, of like yeah. trying to be a little bit of everything while actually being like nothing. Uncharted earlier this year, another another great example. But now that I put this in your brain, you will see trailers all the time, and you'll be like, "Oh yeah, they're kind of doing that again. They're gonna go. They're gonna go do a heist. A lot of the time, the heist is in a fancy party, so you'll often get a scene where the characters like have to dress up in nice gowns and tuxedos and like." you know you get the sports car pulling up outside of the the gala event and they all get out and it's like slow motion um the fast and the furious movies i think like gave birth to this like that's where this came from is other people trying to do what they do with the fast and furious movies. well well i feel like it we're uh, sort of like several generations removed from it but this is still people sort of smarting from the facts that we never reached the highs of something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which in turn was based on like a lot of 1930s adventure serials. Right. The, the magic of Raiders of the Lost Ark was it actually kind of had, it had the same spirit as those old uh, serials, but it would, you know, was just like bigger and slicker. Same with Star Wars. Star Wars took yeah. like, a lot of these old serials and tried to make them uh, feel as big now as it, they perhaps felt to the filmmakers when they exactly. saw those serials as kids. Right. And like and Raiders now, is a great uh, example. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, just now uh, we have a, a new generation of filmmakers who are trying to do that, not even necessarily with uh, with Raiders of the Lost Ark, but with like the films that Raiders of the Lost Ark begat. And those are the ones that are now being copied. And so now we have uh, this sort of... Ne- necessity for these caper elements and these sort of adventure elements but the filmmakers don't have the love for it. they're just imitating imitations there's also it's i i think that yes you're you're getting to it i think what i was going to say too the the imitation of imitation that that all of these movies are so painfully meta and self-aware that it becomes a crutch that it's like, because the thing about Raiders is, you're right, it's riffing on old movies, adventure serials, the stuff that Spielberg and Lucas watched when they were kids. But it commits. It's it, If they're doing an action scene, they 100% commit to making it a mind-blowing 
action spectacular like you've never seen before. If it's mm. comedy, they write jokes, and Harrison Ford is a natural comedian, and it's very funny. And I think the thing you get today is like, you get a movie like Free Guy where it's like not designed to be taken seriously. Ryan Reynolds is going to riff and make faces and mug at you the whole time to let you know we're not really committing. Like we're mm-hmm. not we're not really going to make this an action blowout. We're not really going to make you care and, and cry. We're not really going to make you. Yeah, you know, we're just like eh, it's like kind of funny, right? Like mm-hmm. like what if there you were in a video game, right, man? And I think that 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 self awareness is kind of robbed a lot of movies of their sincerity right. and their commitment to the bit, which is what makes that stuff work. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I think sometimes it does work, and uh, I'm going to bring it back around to Enola Holmes, too, with Let's this. do it! Uh, Let's bring it back around because, to Enola Holmes. <laughs> because I feel like um, there is sort of a, a fun, self-aware, almost adolescent energy that can come from that kind of self-awareness. Sure, I agree. And, uh, some, sometimes yeah. movies can be, you know, cheeky in a fun way. Yeah, 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 yeah. and... Sometimes it's it's a little bit insufferable. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, William and I reviewed a film called Rosaline, which was a very modern romantic comedy uh, based on a supporting character from Romeo and Juliet. And uh, uh, Caitlin Deaver played Rosaline in that one, who was... Yeah, it's just Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but what if yeah, you did it yeah. with Rosaline and Romeo and Juliet instead? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's actually a premise borrowed from uh, an ABC drama from about a decade ago called Still Starcrossed, which was also a TV series about Rosaline and about right, yeah. the war between the Montagues and the Capulets. Uh, it doesn't quite work in a movie like that because I think it doesn't have fun enough with its premise. The only thing it really jokes about is that uh, Romeo is a little bit of a cad, and I wish they could have pushed that a little bit, little bit further. Well, that's um, also because that's in the original play. That's not like, a, hey, did you ever think about it this way? Like, that's implicit in the original text. Like, yeah, Romeo yeah. as written is a cad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, anyway. So, uh, uh, but then uh, another movie came out, uh, another sort of, I called it a slumber party movie, uh, and it was called uh, Catherine Called Birdie. It's um, uh, uh, Lena Dunham's most recent right. film. And that one is also uh, pretty cheeky. It has sort of like a modern character, but it resists the temptation to have people um, making modern references or speaking in a very modern way. It actually has a little bit of... Uh, for lack of a better term, more poised than some of these other movies. And as such, it emerges as a much stronger film. Also, Lena Dunham has, however you feel about her as a person, she actually has a good eye for giving all of the characters in that movie uh, sort of a sympathetic voice, and everybody sort of emerges, and it becomes a little bit more of a richer drama. So, Something like Enola Holmes rides the line, where it's super modern, but it does try to give sort of the main character a lot more personality and then you look at something like Rosaline and just that sort of modern uh, caper cynicism uh, sort of rests yeah. very gently on top of it yeah I feel like that with so many movies today where they're mm-hmm. just like stop winking at me and just do the thing like just yeah, tell yeah, the story yeah. if, it, if it's good I'll like it you don't have to keep winking at me I know that you're a movie I get it yeah, I get. Yeah. I know what movies are. I get how it works. <laughs> I've I've seen movies before. Yeah, like every movie, you think like, like, huh? Right, doing a movie here, and it's like, yeah, I know. I paid to see it. I get it. <laughs> uh, I, I, William uh, has brought this up a couple times in the past, and I, I'm not sure how much I agree with it, but 
uh, he sometimes argues that films, especially ones with uh, perhaps like a younger audience in mind, uh, that it's oh, it's a little bit safer for films like that to repeat a lot of familiar tropes because the idea is some young person is going to see those tropes for the first time in that film, and sure. not ne- they're not necessarily starting from the beginning of cinema or watching the same films. Uh, we saw as kids. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think as, as film evolves, we don't necessarily have to keep pivoting on those tropes as like educational experiences. I think the kids will get it. They're going to have their own version of it. And I don't think we need to necessarily repeat a lot of the same kind of language over and over again, assuming that a kid won't understand it if we move beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I I think the goal is always, like, even if you're working with some idea from the past or remixing something you've seen elsewhere, which is, you know, everybody's doing it, and that's what storytelling is about in a lot of ways, you're you're adding something new as well. You're never just rotely like, well, it's going to be new for somebody. Like, well, sure it is, but you should be aiming higher than that, hopefully. Exactly, exactly. I'm going to appeal to the lowest common denominator, like the person who's seen the least amount of other stuff. I also, I have Having said that, on the other hand, I don't think you could possibly write and plan things for an audience of like jaded older people who know all the tropes. Right. Because at a at a certain point, you just know all the tropes. Like, what are you going to do? Like, I had to just. I think I, I'm I'm 43 years old, and I think by the time you reach my age, you just have to have a moment where you realize like. There's not that much new under the sun. Like, not every story is going to shock and surprise me anymore. And mm. part of my perspective as an older viewer is, how well do you work with the raw materials that every storyteller is working with? Yeah, not, yeah. how do you blow my mind new every time? Because, like, like, a lot, you know, this was... Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, which was a really good movie that I enjoyed. This is going to yeah, sound yeah. like I'm knocking it. I'm not knocking it. I really like that movie. But for people in their 20s, it was this, like, mind-expanding <laughs> experience. Like, like, and I mean that, I don't mean that in a, in a snarky way. Like, it was really broadening their horizons of, like, what a movie could do and how, like, a movie could be sort of artsy and thoughtful and character-based, but also integrate all these, like, mind-expanding, crazy, imaginative sci-fi ideas. Uh, yeah. But if you are, like, my age and have that perspective... There was kind of a moment in, like, the 90s where movies also, like, when Kaufman and Michelle Gondry and Aronofsky and those guys were new. And that was my mind expanding, like, when I saw Pi, you know? And I'm yeah. Like, Whoa! Yeah. Okay. Well, then, <laughs> and, and then you go, you can go back even further. And, you know, I, I remember being, uh, like, 15 or 16 and seeing uh, Eraserhead for the first time. That was exactly. 1977. And that, right. that was and the I mean, mind-blowing one. And, so. and you could go back to, like, Maya Darren and Stan Brackage. You know, yeah, like, you could yeah. go back into history and do this. Like, like of course, it's very, it's it's generational stuff. So I think that's that's just part of becoming a more seasoned, older film viewer is accepting that, like, I'm going to see tropes that I've seen a hundred thousand times. And it becomes how creatively are they employed, not have no. I ever heard this trope before? Because there just aren't that many new tropes that I haven't heard before. You got to you gotta get pretty obscure on your tropes to fool me. Right, right, right. Or, or you know, there, there's no reason why every single filmmaker can't try to break the mold every time. And, you know. Sure. And I just mean, like, like the, the stuff that really bothers me at this point is, like, there's, like, canned dialogue. Like, when you recognize that, like, 
Like, the, the one thing I say about red notices, to bring it back to that for a second, a lot of red notices, for some reason, have an argument about the map. Like, where's the map? You had the map. I thought you had the map. Like, it's just such an easy, stupid thing, like, when you need banter. And Aww. I think red... Red Notice itself has that scene, which is why Aww. it's a great example. But that scene is in so many things. <laughs> Jungle Cruise, I think, too, has a map scene. Aww. But um, that's that's the kind of trope I don't like, where it's just like, you know, like somebody tries to get up and they're wearing their seatbelt and then they go, that's going to leave a mark. You know, like, just, <laughs> we get Although, it. There there are some gags like that I'll always appreciate. The, the um, running into the alcoholic on the street who is heavily drinking and is clearly intoxicated. And then they, they witnessing check a their, fancy, like, yeah, their they, bottle. They some like, sort of fantastic, some fantastical thing. A centaur runs by and they look at their booze and they throw it away. Like that, right. I'll, I'll always appreciate that on a level. It always makes me fascinated where like, I always want to know what, who the first, like what was the first movie that was in that everybody else is ripping off? Uh, I, I, for something like that, I imagine it's like, you know, it goes back to silent comedy. Like, yeah, it's, or like vaudeville or right. Like it's probably before film. Mm-hmm. It was like a live stage thing mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. There, and there are still some tropes. Uh, the, the one I always like to come back to is um, the, the wisecracking pathologist. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, th- there's, yeah. A, there's a wisecracking pathologist in every single movie and TV show. If there's going to be an autopsy scene, you're going to have somebody well, smoking like the, yeah, cigarettes and making two. jokes. Right, it's two. It's it's both. They're they're wisecracking. They don't take it seriously, and also they're either smoking or eating. You always yeah, get yeah. that. They always like they're smoking or they're like have they got a sandwich and they're like putting it down right next to the body. It's always because right, right. they're that's how we know they're blasé. Like they see this all the time. Yeah, this yeah. horror is nothing new to them. Uh, it, it's it's an old joke and it, it always gets me. Uh, and if if there are any Hollywood casting agents, listen to this. If you need a wisecracking pathologist, I'm your man. I'm, I'm going to come <laughs> yeah. in and I'll I'll be the best wisecracking pathologist you've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, we've saved it for the end. Let's talk about we weird the Al Yankovic story uh, from yeah. on the on the Roku channel. Uh, Lon, why don't you describe weird the Al Yankovic story? Oh, uh, okay. Weird, weird the it, it it is both a uh, it's it's a parody of musical biopics along the lines of something like Walk Hard, while still in some surprisingly accurate ways at times relating the general story of Al Yankovic's rise to fame as a parody uh, songwriter and musician. So you get a little, you get you get notes here and there of the real story, like his relationship with uh, the the disc jockey Doctor Demento, who's played by Rain Wilson here, uh, and the sort of his you know his teaming up with his first band and the Scotty Brothers records, and sort of how he, he started conceiving some of these songs. Uh, but it's it's heavily mixed in with a lot of real flight of fancy imaginative sequences where he also creates like an alternate history mm-hmm. of not just Weird Al's career, but sort of all of 80s alternate Hollywood. Uh, there's this, I think the <laughs> highlight of the film, a sort of riff on Boogie Nights where he goes to a pool party at Dr. Demento's house and we get uh, actors playing all kinds of weird 80s luminaries from Divine to Frank Zappa to the comedian Gallagher. Mm. Uh, Emo Phillips is there playing the artist Salvador Dali, who's there for some reason. Uh, and yeah, so it, it, uh, Jack Black is Wolfman Jack in that sequence, which I thought was terrific. Um, so yeah, you, you're you're both getting a look at the career where uh, Dan, Daniel Radcliffe uh, playing Weird Al, but also this very like silly, zany sort of take on the the tropes of something like a Bohemian Rhapsody or a, a more yeah, conventional yeah. Walk the Line, you know, more conventional musical biopic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, uh, Daniel Radcliffe, like he doesn't 
look or sound at all like Al Yankovic. And I think no. that's kind of <laughs> kind of by design. They needed somebody with a little bit of that movie star sheen to kind of send up uh, how how serious these biopics tend to be. Because you look at Weird Al Yankovic's career, it's actually really astonishing in real life that he kind of came up as a teenager, kind of in sort of a punk and new wave movement. Uh, if you've heard some of his like super, super early stuff when he was still a teenager, he was doing things like, here's uh, Debbie Boone's you, Do- you Light Up My Life, but in the style of Devo. Try to, you know, try to find that recording at some point. Uh, and, uh, so he, at the beginning he had this sort of like impish quality, but he was also really not taking, um, like he took his music career seriously, but he wasn't expected to be taken seriously because he was a comedian. He was a comedy musician. And, uh, in against all odds, Weird Al became successful as a comedy musician, there aren't any comedy musicians who have been as successful as Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah, not and, not uh, since at all. Definitely yeah. not. It's also, I mean, I I think the movie the movie's not taking any of this seriously at all. It's just for fun and it's very funny. Mm-hmm. But it is there is a charm to it because it is also remembering this era, you know, before the internet when that wasn't a way to get there there wasn't this avenue for people like. Today, if you wanted to do what Weird Al was doing, you would just put things on TikTok or YouTube. It's it's immediate. Like, we all yeah. know how to, like, get a creative, weird, silly video out there. But in the 1970s, when Weird Al was doing it, it was, you know, you had to go get a band together and make a recording in a train station bathroom, which is a sequence oh. in this movie. And, I mean, Although, there's a real... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, just... Uh, it. He actually did record uh, My Bologna in a bathroom, although yeah. uh, in, in actuality, it was the bathroom uh, at his college, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and not a public train station restroom. Right. But it's Yeah, but it is, it's capturing that, that charm of like, that, that, that it was this sort of more low-key, amateurish, like Hollywood was more low-key and amateurish. It was, a, it was such a different time, and I think... The movie, in its own sort of sweet way, is kind of a nod to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While I'm, being super ridiculous and funny and like a joke. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and this is the first movie that that uh, Al Yankovic has made since UHF in 1989, uh, which he he wrote, uh, co-wrote that yeah. the screenplay for that one, and he starred in it. Uh, and it came out in the summer of 1989 against like. A, just a slew of really huge releases like Indiana Jones uh, and the last crusade came out that summer and uh, back to the future. Batman. uh, That was the Batman. Batman came out that summer. I think (laughs) uh, one of the star Trek sequels came out that summer. Uh, Yes. There, there was just, you know, lethal. One of the lethal weapon movies came out that summer. It was just this glut of gigantic movies and UHF was kind of lost in, in that. And the movie bombed. A a favorite of mine, a childhood favorite of mine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but not a, and, and, I think what's what's amazing about this is you can sort of see there is some commonality between this movie and UHF, uh, especially its its love of action films and mm. uh, you know like sort of it, it, it's a parody of musical biopics and it also takes a detour to being a parody of a uh, of big action movies, which I appreciated, and just its its love of you know like offbeat outsiders and weirdos and 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 you know it's it's a it's a it's a story about underdogs and eccentrics and and yeah. and it loves those kinds of people in the same way that UHF did. Well, it I I think what um something that Weird Al has that we don't really have in a lot of pop culture these days and uh is 
that is that outsider spirit. You know, he goes he goes right. to this that wonderful party, and it's yeah, these sort of like cult figures, uh, like you know, like Divine and Frank Zappa. And, right. And it's Tiny it's Tim not the there. most. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not Eddie Murphy and Tom Cruise like that was never his world. And I mean, Madonna, Evan Rachel Wood plays Madonna, and mm-hmm. that's played as like a goof that you know she's his girlfriend for a big chunk of the movie. But but yeah, when he goes to the pool party, it's like well that that was his sort of like crowd. You know, it's this sort of mm-hmm. it's the outsider crowd. It's the like weird crowd. It's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I feel like. Um, Al Yankovic, if you, you you look at something like UHF, he actually attracts all of these kind of weirdo outsider acts and other people. Like he um, uh, he was good friends with uh, the late great Judy Tenuta. Uh, right. it, there's a, this wonderful sequence in UHF where he, uh, the Kipper Kids are performing very briefly. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, yes. l- look up the Kipper Kids at some point. They were also in uh, Forbidden Zone. Uh, one of them is married to Bette Midler. I learned recently. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, like. They were like sort of this surrealist performance art act. They kind of just got together and made weird noises essentially on stage and dumped buckets of water on their heads. And they've done that for decades. Yeah, they're uh, on the they're on the U sixty two telethon in UHF. Yeah, they're just one of going, the acts that That's the Kipper yeah. kids. That's the sort of and you know he uh, became friends with uh, Doctor Demento, who was you know. He he. Doctor Demento is actually just like a music nerd. He knows like a lot about blues and just music history in general. Right. But he came to prominence sort of playing these comedy records on his comedy music station. He earned the earned the nickname Doctor Demento. His real name is Barry Hansen. Uh, and it, it's sort of odd to see something like Weird and a character like uh, a, a figure, just a pop culture figure like Weird Al Yankovic, continue to reach mainstream appeal when that was never really his thing. And I feel like uh, popular culture these days is a little bit more about insiders. It's about being on the inside. It's about being welcomed onto the team. You look at something like the Avengers movies, especially those... uh, I'm not a huge fan of the Spider-Man films, but um, those movies are about uh, whether or not Spider-Man will get to essentially join the football team. Will he be welcomed onto the superhero team? It's about right. bringing people in. It's about making sure the whole world accepts you as you are. Whereas Weird Al comes from a generation when the comfort was to be found on the outside. And the central conceit of parody in Weird the Al Yankovic story is that it's a joke that he was as widely accepted as he was. There's all these jokes about how his records are going... Uh, not true, you know, based on fact that his records are going like quintuple platinum right away. Right. And then, he's, the, he's yeah. the biggest musician in the world in the movie. I mean, that's mm. also, I think there's two things going on. Like what you're saying is true. It's also kind of a parody of like authorized biopics, like where yeah, yeah. everybody's always telling him he's the greatest and his music is the most popular in the world. And he's like, you know, can do anything. And he's like a superhero. So, I mean, like that's, that's implicitly built into too, but you're right that, that it, it is, uh, you know, he, he is he is implausibly popular in a way that that like kind of does defy. There's no modern equivalent. Yeah. 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 And, um, uh, and and I, I admire that Ali Yankovic can do this just because he's been, oh, you know, he's he's in his early 60s now and he's now inspired new generations of comedians and they all show up in this movie. Uh, yeah. Your weird Alex calls you up and say, hey, you want to be in my movie? Yeah, you're going to show up. Uh, hey, Diedrich Bader, can you play me as a narrator? Yeah, yeah Diedrich Bader <laughs> can do that. Um, uh, a, a highlight, uh, Toby Huss. It's always a, t- a delight to see Obi- Toby Huss. He plays uh, Al Yankovic's father, and 
in a very cliched way, doesn't approve of his weird devil music of parodies. Nobody will understand this, son. Um, yeah, I, I after Walk Hard, I when they first announced this, obviously, like, I love Weird Al. I was excited that Weird Al was going to make a movie with Daniel Radcliffe. It sounds funny. But I was a little worried, like, Walk Hard is such a good send-up of all of these tropes, you know? Yeah. The, like... The, like, wrong kid died. Like, that trope specifically, that it did feel like, is this going to feel repetitive, like it's going over the same ground again? And it really doesn't. Like, I think I think the the magic of it is just that it's a very funny script, and they yeah, got very funny yeah. actors. And so it's not relying on the gimmick. It's actually the writing is funny, and they got funny mm. people. So it, it works on its own, even though the ideas are familiar from Walkhart. Yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's a low-budget film. I think it was made for, like, less than $10 million. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's debuting on the Roku channel. It's not in theaters. Um, uh, but it still, so it doesn't have sort of like the bigness or the slickness I think it was kind of shooting for, especially in some of the later sequences. But it does manage to have like momentum. It doesn't just have sort of the gag and repeat it. Actually, things escalate as the film. And I'm not going to say yeah. where it goes or what some of the gags are because uh-huh. I wouldn't dare spoil them. But yeah, it, that it continues on sort of an upward swing all the way throughout, all the way to the very end. Yeah, it, I think it does it's really feel admirable. like yeah, it does feel like a movie. It doesn't like a, a lot of the Roku stuff. It, it and it ends up feeling like you know, like there's a sketchness to some of this stuff, but not this movie. Like this feels you feel like you're watching a movie. It's a real mm. movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how how familiar are you with? With Weird Al, or you're, you said you're a big fan oh, of UHF. I'm, I'm, but... I'm a, yeah, no, I, I grew up with Weird Al. I'm okay. pretty familiar. Yeah, I, I got I got his record uh, Dare to be Stupid when I was eight, so I've been kind of hooked. Yeah, I've, I've, been a, I've been a fan for most of my life. There definitely are a few Easter eggs uh, if you are, uh, you know, a, a, a big fan. I, mm-hmm. felt I caught, like, two or three little references that I feel like were kind of buried in there. Yeah, yeah, I... I I thought it's cute that Al Yankovic appears in the movie as one of the Scotty brothers. That's really yeah, cute. he's right. Right. Well, that's that's one of them when they're like, "We want to sign you to a fourteen album deal." That's how many Weird Al albums there are, folks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and and actually, I think that's based on his real contract. I think yeah. he had this like hugely long contract with Scotty Brothers, and yeah. there was a some concern uh, when he released his last record. It's called Mandatory Fun. Uh, that was the last of his promised records. He had done oh, all of his well, studio albums, and he's. And Weird Al has said, I don't know if I can keep doing this because just because of the way pop culture is shaped. He pop music isn't the monolith that it once was. There are certainly popular songs, but he doesn't know if he can really tap into the zeitgeist the way he once did. Right. I mean, yeah, it, it like a a sixty five year old white guy mm. is is maybe not the ideal choice to be parodying. You know, songs by people one third his age. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that I think that makes some sense. At the same time, I feel like he, he he'll figure out a next act. Maybe it'll be making films or writing films or something. But yeah, yeah. well, he's, he's I don't think he'll necessarily. Yeah, he's done a lot of books, but yeah, yeah. I, I I mean I I get I get what he's saying that like it, it it's a little weird to keep doing parodies of like top forty music into your sixties and seventies like that, mm. that that might not that might not last forever yeah yeah um but yeah this weird the Al Yankovic story is really great it's a good spiritual successor to um a video that Al made like way back in 1985, uh, called The Complete Al. Did you ever see The Complete Al? Yeah, sure. Okay, I remember yeah. this, yeah. And that was, a, like, it told the Weird Al story, but in this exaggerated way. Like, his dad right. wanted him to work at the factory, but the joke in the movie was that it was, like, a nasal decongestant factory, and he was in, 
charge of quality control. So he just made himself high, sniffing the nasal decongestants all day. Yeah. Um, yo, he he was born in Linwood, California. There is actual uh, footage in in the complete owl of young Al Yankovic as a child playing an accordion for the first time. But at the same time, uh, they, there's like these weird fake dramatizations of how he's auditioning his band and all of these weird musicians who go uh, to audition for him. Uh, so this is a gag that he's been repeating for a long time. And I feel like when Funny or Die did this sort of uh, unauthorized fake preview, it's like, okay, they're tapping into a new kind of like post-walk-hard spoof, and then they're just sort of uh, reworking that with the complete owl sensibility. So this is yeah. very much of a but, piece I mean, a- of But I mean, after this and mm. Walk Hard and Popstar, mm. I feel like if you want to do a musical biopic parody at this point, you got to really bring it. Yeah, like, there are yeah. three... There are three incredibly solid additions to this genre, and, like... That may be it, folks. Like, I don't know, Meet the Ruddles, I guess, too qualifies. <laughs> Spinal Tap maybe in there. But, like, mm. goddamn, I, I, like, I, that might be the most stacked niche in comedy, the the musical biopic yeah, parody. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Eric Appel has very jokingly said it. Uh, he said in an interview recently that he was going to do a sequel. He's going to do Weird 2. And, uh, and of course, it was just going to get even wilder. It's going to be like, oh, but there's there's going to be, like, time travel in Weird 2. It's like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're just going just going there, are you? Um, yeah, but I, I feel like yeah. this one succeeds a lot in getting sort of like a, a pre-established affection that sort of society in general has for Al Yankovic and uh, mixing it with that kind of more 2010s funnier die sensibility and getting something actually effective out of it. It's not yeah, tired. I, I mean, I, I feel like he he's, he's in a very fortunate place because it, not only does his old stuff hold up because it doesn't feel dated. It doesn't feel like it wasn't inappropriate, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't have that, it, like you, you can listen to it today and it doesn't feel like it's from the eighties necessarily, even though I, it's, it's parodying old songs, mm. but I, I feel like it's, it's held up pretty well. And just his tongue in cheek, ironic, self-aware, self-deprecating approach was like, ahead of its time in the 80s and now is, like, of the moment. So, like, I feel like he kind of fits in a modern sensibility better than a lot of other artists from his time or a lot of other comedians from his time where maybe it was a less, uh, like, self-aware thing. Like, you know, Eddie Murphy's comedy, he kind of have to translate it to the modern day. Yeah. But, uh, like, and, and Andrew Dice's Clay comedy kind of doesn't hold up at all anymore. Well, and, uh, if, if it was even funny to begin with. I mean, uh, right. But, like, but Weird Al's comedy and his whole sensibility and his whole perspective, I think, like, it didn't really have to change that much. Like, this movie, in its perspective, isn't really all that different from UHF. It's just kind of what he's doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and I feel like you could do UHF 2, like, next year, and it wouldn't, it would be perfectly suited, you know? Like, it, you wouldn't have to update it that much. He would just be making a YouTube channel now instead of a no. UHF station. No, he'd, he'd be launching his own Quibi. Like, he'd have his own streaming right. channel. exactly. But, like, you can see how that same concept and that same approach and that same attitude, like, you wouldn't need to reinvent the wheel. It would just be parodies of TikTok-type videos instead of UHF shows. Yeah, yeah. 
And and sometimes that works. Uh, have you been catching up on the new Beavis and Butthead at all? Sure. I love it. I think yeah. it's great. There, there's, yeah. oh, there's an episode where he ha- uh, Beavis has a drill in class that just makes yeah, me laugh and laugh. It's so funny. Uh, the, but, the one, there's one where they get they get stuck in a box together. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the whole episode. It's a whole cartoon. It's like a 20-minute episode about them getting stuck in this box together. It's so, I was dying. It's so funny because it's so simple. You don't need to. You don't need to overthink this stuff. It's two two idiots stuck in a box. That's fine. <laughs> well, but the point I was going to make is that Beavis and Butthead, uh, they had to sort of dispense with the uh, segments where Beavis and Butthead sit on the couch and watch MTV because that's not right. that's not a thing anymore. So what they have, what they've done is now they're just watching like TikTok videos and yeah, you know, YouTube, YouTube and YouTube TikTok videos. exactly, and it and it works perfectly yeah, because it's like yeah. well that. That is what teenagers sit around and comment on now. They don't react to mm. MTV anymore. They react to TikTok videos. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I, I think there, there's a a lot of these concepts that might seem dated on the surface are actually still going to work if you bother to update them sort of in the same spirit. And that's definitely what, what Weird is yeah, doing. Yeah, well, I mean, like, you, Weird Al kind of begat a lot of YouTube. Like, if you go back, especially early YouTube culture, it was a lot of people doing Weird Al kind of stuff, like making parodies of popular songs, making goofy, silly videos where they wear crazy costumes, or, you know, not that different from what we would have grown up watching Weird Al do. So in, in a lot of ways, it makes sense that he would be, like, the king of this kind of culture now mm-hmm. because he was sort of the progenitor of it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, those are our movies for this week. Uh, there it is. Here, here on the critically acclaimed network, we have a rating system. Lon, you want to get in on this? Wow, uh, sure. Yeah, uh, we rate films on a, a scale of C minus to C plus. Uh, that is, if we don't like a movie, if we disapprove, if we want you to stay away, and any, for any reason, we give it a C minus. If we uh, find it to be passable or enjoyable or, or average or just maybe worth your time we give it a c and if it's a good film we give it a c plus uh this is a rating system we've established so that we will never be quoted in any ads uh <laughs> right makes sense so uh lon weird the al yankovic story what, what would you give that oh this one gets a c plus for me for sure yeah. i i it might be the it might be the funniest movie this year i don't know if i've laughed more at a movie this year yeah it's really really good um i also give it a c plus uh, Enola Holmes 2, I'm going to give uh, a, a high C. Like, it, it's energetic and it's really fun and I love Millie Bobby Brown mm-hmm. and, you know, easy-to-follow, teen-ready story. Uh, yeah. You know, might be good at a slumber party kind of a movie and I, I really, yeah. really like that kind of a film. Reminds me of that, that Martin Short uh, band leader character. Like, give me a C! Give me a bouncy <laughs> C! Bouncy C! Causeway, what do you give Causeway? I'm I'm gonna be boring because I think I'm I'm going the same, but uh, I'm also gonna give Causeway a C plus. I like oh, yeah. that a lot. Yeah, I, I give it a C plus too. Not a hugely passionate one. I think this is one that I'm gonna have to marinate with for a little while, just because there's a lot of like subtle character work that's kind of getting under my skin. But yeah, I give it a a, a, a gentle C plus. <laughs> a gentle C. A gentle sure. C plus. Uh, what what else did we review? All All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, I think I did is, not see that one. Uh, I, like, I want to give it a C plus, but it's just not, like, uh, it gets a little too distracted. So I'm, I'm going to give it a C. I think it's really effective. I think it's really miserable. I think it's really, like, just aggressively sad in a way that I, I personally typically find kind of appealing. I, I admit I've maybe twisted taste. But, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't quite 
hit uh, hit the notes that I think it's really going for. So I'll give it a C. Yeah. And, and then uh, lastly, Wendell and Wild. Yeah, Wendell and Wild. What do you give Wendell and Wild? I'm going to go C pluses across the board today. <laughs> I like I liked Wendell and Wild a lot. I mm. uh, more more than I thought. I was a little worried about this one based on the trailers. It just seemed kind of all over the place. But uh, I don't know. I thought it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I uh, I also give it a C plus. I think this is you know peculiar textured kind of animated film that I really enjoy. Uh, and as and as I said, I think even if it is a little bit of uh, a little bit shabby here and there. It at least, you know, is doing it in terms of, in service of like interesting novel visuals and some fun story ideas that, uh, yeah, you know, I haven't I, been I tried like, before. If I was a kid, I think I would really love it. Like if I was like 13, that would be like oh, my yeah, favorite yeah, movie for sure, this year. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Although when I was 13, I wouldn't have appreciated like the appearance of like a Link Ray t-shirt. No, but you know, like I, yeah, I, I, I still like looking back that, cause even, I, you know, it kind of reminds me in some ways of uh, Monkey Bone, which is a movie that most people hated that I really liked. Uh, and it's, it's some fun, you know, there's some fun, interesting visual stuff in Monkey Bone. Yeah, mm. I just, I just, I like, I like his, his aesthetic and I like that whole visual style. And I like that, yeah, that, that it's a little gross looking. It's a little like odd looking and it, it's not, it doesn't feel like. Uh, this was designed by committee. It feels yeah. like weird and artsy and like one person's weird vision. And I, I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. This has actually been a really good year for animation. Uh, Cause I've, Oh yeah. Um, Lots of great I, I was very fond of an animated film called the sea beast. That's another Netflix film. Yeah. Um, I really like that one too. And, and then mad God, obviously yeah, oh God, yeah. it's mad God. Mad, mad, yeah. If, if, if you want to live in a tool video for an hour and a half, that's oh awesome. I, I love that's, mad God. That's my favorite. That's my favorite movie this year. Yeah, it's, it's, that's my number it, one. It's still, it's definitely like still one of my top 10. Uh, and uh, I, on the other side of things, we have Marcel the Shell with shoes on, which is you know, just sweet and <laughs> gentle and wonderful. 180 opposite side yeah. of things, yeah. But also great. Yeah, there's been a lot of great animation. Yeah, and and, uh, and another one of my favorites this year was uh, Rich, Richard Linklater's new movie, which is... Uh, oh, right, Apollo yeah, I like that half. one a lot, yeah, yeah. too. Apollo 10 and a half, that's mm-hmm. right. So, yeah, a lot of good yeah, animated wow. films this year. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Anyway, uh, that's that's our show. Uh, if you have enjoyed this show, dear listener, uh, you can actually write us a letter and tell us what you thought. Tell us how we got stuff right. Tell us how we got stuff wrong. Take us to task for things we got wrong. Uh, you can send us an email to letters at criticallyacclaims.net. You can actually also mail us an actual physical letter. Send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Do it today. Lon Harris, thank you so much hey. for joining us. Uh, thank you for having what, us. S- sell your stuff. What do you got for us? Oh, uh, the big thing I will sell you on is Binge Boys. That's my podcast with Hal Rudnick. We watch a bunch of streaming stuff, not just films, sometimes films, also TV. Uh, and then we just talk about, but much like this, we, we talk about what's going on in our lives. And then we review all of the stuff that we watched uh, that past week. So be sure to check out Binge Boys wherever you get your podcast. Well, thank you. For, and thank you for joining us. Uh, send good, good wishes to William Bibiani. I hope his voice gets better soon. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and now I get to sign off the show myself. So uh, thank you for listening. And as you all know, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?
Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.